That's Acts chapter 12, beginning to read at verse 24 on page 1107. Paul, uh, also known as Saul and, um, and Barnabas, had been with the church in Antioch. But at the end of chapter 11, we read that they were both sent uh, to the church in Jerusalem with a gift to help the church there in a time of need. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from his faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Our second reading is from Ephesians chapter 6 beginning to read at verse 10 and can be found on page 1177 of the Church Bibles. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled round your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, 
Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, do we pray, show us Christ. Show us what it means to live for him and follow him as your people, the church. That we might bring glory to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me tell you about a church. It is... Uh, situated in a cosmopolitan and vibrant city, a city that is a melting pot of people from many different backgrounds and ethnicities and religions, Jew and Gentile. People are coming to faith, the church is growing, the church has developed a leadership and that leadership is seeking to be diverse like the people and the wider culture that they serve. And the church is thinking, what happens next? So where is this church that I'm describing to you well it perhaps could almost be st john's downshire hill but it is also a description of the church in antioch that's we heard about in the, in, in the reading this church our church st john's has some similarities we, ha- we we are in a cosmopolitan vibrant city and antioch was a major and influential city in the known world of the time People were coming to faith. And and verse 1, can you see this in the reading? It's a diverse church led by diverse people. Perhaps we're not quite as diverse as, as what's described here yet, but we're getting there. But look at them. Look at what it says. Their prophets and teachers or their leaders, in other words, are Barnabas, a Jewish believer in Jesus from Jerusalem. Simeon called Niger, which means, uh, the word means black, which almost certainly refers to the color of his skin. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene is a city in North Africa, modern day Libya. Uh, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, so a Jewish believer again, but one from a more privileged background. And then Saul, who we see later in verse 9, is Paul from Tarsus, an ex-Pharisee, now apostle to the Gentiles. So can you see, this is a church that we're reading about here in in chapter 13 that reflects its context and its own people, a diverse church for a diverse city. And at that point, it might be easy to think, well, you know, that's brilliant. We've done it. You know, we've formed a church. Now we just need to get bedded down into the culture and get on with ministry and living for Jesus in Antioch. But God has other ideas for them. The Holy Spirit causes them to be a church that is not content to remain as they are, but pushes out beyond the fringe. 
in the book of Acts, whenever the Holy Spirit speaks in the way that, you know, we can see here in verse 2, the Holy Spirit speaks and they, hit, they, they sort of, there's a sense in which they hear his voice. We'll think about exactly what that means. But whenever the Holy Spirit is reported as speaking in this way in the book of Acts, it's always in order to push God's people out beyond the fringes. Because remember Jesus' words that set the agenda at the beginning of the book of Acts. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And so when the Holy Spirit speaks, he's always pushing them to do what Jesus said they would do. To go beyond, not just to be content where they are, but to go to the new place where the gospel has not been heard. So that commission to reach beyond the fringes remains ours today. We're still doing this ministry, this work, to reach all ends of the earth with the good news about Jesus. And what we see here is how that happened for this diverse church in a cosmopolitan city, how it went beyond the fringe of their community. So let's see what we can learn from them. So you can see on the back of the notice sheet there's three headings and we'll see on the screen as well. First, they prayed sincerely. They prayed sincerely. So verse 2, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So do you notice that context for God energising them in this way? It was worship and fasting, fasting and praying. Perhaps we can be a little bit suspicious of things like fasting uh, today. What is fasting? It's not eating food. Isn't it a bit like arm-twisting God? You know, look how religious I am, God. Now give me what I want. Or perhaps we can be suspicious of merely outward religious acts and how easily we use them to... Uh, not to please God, but to show off to others. So Jesus had some words about that in the Sermon on the Mount, including making sure that fasting wasn't something we boast about to others to show them how great we are, but something that we do in secret. But nevertheless, it, it's clear that, that early Christians didn't only fast in secret. But the other thing to note is that fasting was always in order to pray and to worship. So you do without food in order to free up your time and your energy and your focus to be on God. And that's the point of it, and in particular to enable the hunger to cause you to hunger more for God. Now, in that sense, it's not just about food. It's about saying to God, praying is so important and so fundamental that there are things I will do without in order to be able to do this. And things we will do without in order to be able to prioritise praying together. Can you see? Because we want to depend on him most of all. So does that in any way fit with how we might think about prayer? You know, so easily we say, well, some things are obviously non-negotiable. You know, we, we know that, don't we? You know, so I've got to sleep, we say. You know, I've got, to, I've got to eat, I've got to work, I've got to care for the children, I've got to keep up the exercise plan and the, and the training. I can't live without coffee. 
Can't live without computer games and screen time, maybe, for, you know, for some of us. You know, these things are just what, you know, these things are non-negotiable. And there are so many things like that where we're really clear. We'll do them no matter what. But then it comes to prayer and we think, oh, well, if it, if it fits in with everything else I'm doing, I might, get, I might get to that. Worship, well, you know, if it fits with the schedule, then fine. But you see what's, what's happening here. You see a church that thrives and grows and reaches beyond the fringes and makes a difference in the city that it's in and in the world will be a church that prays. That's what's happening here. A church that is willing to say, I will give up things to make that happen. It might be food, but for us in, in busy North London, it, it, it's going to be things like time, isn't it? See, that's the thing that we, you know, we, we, we really struggle because there's so little of it and so much to do. And it takes time and energy and effort to gather in order to pray together and to be God's people calling on God together. And it's worth acknowledging that that is costly. It is costly to, to, to gather and pray with other believers in Jesus. But God loves it when we pray and depend on him. That's the point. And it is through their prayer that God then leads them to what to do. He shows them. Now, what does it mean? It says the Holy Spirit said as they were, as they were praying. Well, how did he say this? Well, in just the verse before, we've heard about the prophets in the church. And we've heard before in Acts about this particular gift of applying God's word to particular times and places. And that may well be the sense in which the Holy Spirit said, go and do this in these circumstances. Because that's how he normally speaks, through God's people applying the word of God to their situation. So through the leaders of his people getting a particular sense as they prayed that this was the right thing to do. But note also the way in which that message came. It wasn't Paul and Barnabas themselves who were told by God to go. It was the leaders together who were told to set Paul and Barnabas apart. Can you see that? It wasn't, not, it, it wasn't God told me, it was God told us together. It's a collective sense of God's people um, discerning what they should be doing together. So what about us then? Will we be known as a church that prays? That's the question, isn't it? So we, 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 can, we can talk about, the, you know, there, there are formal opportunities to do that. And the, you know, we, we, we're trying to gather to pray before our services, five past ten for ten minutes. It's great to come early and just pray for what's coming up this morning and, and have our hearts and minds fixed on what's ahead. The same before the evening service when, when we do that at 5.30. We pray in our monthly prayer meeting we pray this Wednesday at eight o'clock downstairs we pray in our small groups when we gather and there'll be other ways in which too it doesn't doesn't have to be those, those formal things necessarily but where we we prioritize we say I want to meet up with other Christians in some way in order to be praying as God's people 
particularly praying about what it looks like to go beyond the fringes as they were doing here. This is exactly what we began to think about on our weekend away, if you were with us, with Jason Roach. If we're going to make any progress at all, it's going to begin with this kind of sincere prayer that this church in Antioch was praying. Let me tell you about uh, Jeremiah Lanfier, who was a minister in New York in 1857. And something extraordinary happened in 1857 in New York, but it started like this. Let me read to you his account of what happened. He said, One day, as I was walking along the streets, the idea was suggested to my mind that an hour of prayer from 12 to 1 o'clock would be beneficial to businessmen who usually, in great numbers, take that hour for rest and refreshment. So he's saying, let's, let's do a lunchtime prayer meeting. That's what he's saying. The idea was to have singing, prayer, exhortation, relation of religious experience, as the case might be. And he said that none should be required to stay the whole hour, that all should come and go as their engagement should allow or require or their inclinations dictate. Now, it doesn't sound particularly spectacular when you put it like that, does it? And that led to him distributing leaflets. He was sort of advertising this lunchtime prayer meeting that he wanted to start. So he, he, he advertised and he's sort of handing out leaflets to people. And it said on it, the purpose of the meeting is to give merchants, mechanics, clerks, strangers and businessmen generally an opportunity to stop and call on God amid the perplexities incident to their respective avocations. Now, would you respond to such an invitation to come and pray? Well, he began, 12 noon on the day appointed came, and for the first half an hour, he was there by himself. Nobody came. And so he thought, well, I'm here to pray. This is the appointed hour. So he began to pray, wondering if it was a bit of a waste of time. By one o'clock, as the time came to an end, six had gathered with him, and they prayed. The following week, they did it again. Twenty came. A week after that, forty came. Three weeks later, the stock market crashed in New York, and hundreds came to pray. They filled their church building and the Methodist church next door, and from there, that prayer meeting just began to grow. And it wasn't just hundreds and thousands praying across the city, but then it was hundreds and thousands coming to faith in Jesus. And it was the start of what is now known as the American Revival of 1857 and 1858. You see, and it started with this guy saying, Let, let's pray. And no one came the first time. But it went from there. You see, that kind of movement, when that happens, it depends on God, doesn't it? It's, it's God at work through that kind of thing. It's not something human beings can kind of conjure up and make happen, no matter what kind of efforts we put into that. But, but pre precisely because that's the case, precisely because it only happens when God is at work, it only therefore happens when people pray. Do you see? That's the point. That's why we pray, because this is his work and not ours. So let's pray like the church in Antioch as they began. They prayed sincerely. Secondly, they recognised spiritual opposition. So verse 6, they travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. 
There they met a Jewish sorcerer uh, and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The, pro the proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Do you think you could advance to the next slide because my phone doesn't seem to be connecting anymore? At the back. So the, the, the point here, you see, it's not hard to recognise when you're being opposed. But Paul goes further and he recognises that this is spiritual opposition. Do you see verse 9? He, 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 he recognises that this is, and he looks straight at Elymas and he says, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of, us, of the sun. So suddenly, they've been sent out, off they go, and they're in a, they, 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 they've recognised they're in a spiritual kind of battle. And our second reading from Ephesians that we heard reminds us that we are in a spiritual battle, particularly when it comes to making Jesus known, when it comes to proclaiming Christ. In the West, our culture tells us everything is rational, doesn't it? Everything ought to be explainable in kind of rational terms. The latest trend is to reduce everything to neuroscience. You know, we don't understand everything about the brain yet, but people want to say that we can be confident in the end that we will be able to physically explain every aspect of human behaviour. But the reason we need to think about this and understand that that kind of view of the world is missing something it's because very often when we're trying to do evangelism and we're trying to tell our friends or people that we meet about Jesus, what we find is that despite our best efforts, they don't listen. And they don't want to listen. Or they find excuses. And we think, those excuses don't make sense. Why are you, you know, that doesn't make any sense. But you just sort of say it anyway. You know, this is good news. It makes sense. Surely, surely you can see that. Jesus rose from the dead. It's good evidence. Why, why won't you consider that? And so we approach it on that kind of rational level and we think, I don't get why you won't see what seems so clear. And whether it's just people saying this is not for me or worse, they're, they're actively opposing and accusing Christians of being evil in some way just because of their belief in Jesus, we think, well, there must be some kind of rational explanation for this. And then what we do is we say the problem must be me. And I'm not very good at telling people about Jesus because they don't listen when I try. Um, and we lose confidence and we clam up and we stop. Maybe that's just my experience, but I don't know whether you might echo that yourselves. Well, we need to remember, like Paul realised here, the battle is spiritual. And there will be times uh, when we have non-Christian friends and family where we think, you know, well, they've heard the truth. And we need to realise the problem is not that I haven't explained it properly. The issue is a spiritual one. They're blind and they need God to open their eyes. That's what Paul realised with this chap, Elymas, who was trying to prevent Sergius Paulus from hearing the message and believing in Jesus. And so we, we read what Paul did here. He spoke to Elymas 
in this way. Now, these words that he uses, is this meant to be a model for how we do this? Well, he was an apostle. It's not clear that this is given to all Christians everywhere as a model for how to address this kind of person uh, with these words. You know, you are a child of the devil and all that kind of thing. He has a particular authority to do that and to say that. Um, but, but do note, you know, he was full of the Holy Spirit. So this is the Holy Spirit working and speaking through him. And we know, well, how does the Holy Spirit work and speak today? Well, generally through the teaching and, and preaching of his word, the sword of the Spirit. But maybe a more sure model for Christians in spiritual warfare is not what Paul does here in Acts 13, but it's what Paul says and teaches in Ephesians chapter 6, which we heard in the second reading, which makes clear, you know, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, he says. The battle is real, but it's not something about which Christians need to be afraid. So what does he say? He makes it clear it is a battle, but did you hear the words in the second reading? We won't turn to it now, but he says, what you need to do is he doesn't say fight, he says stand. He just says you need to stand. Put on the spiritual armour of God. Put on the armour of God of faith and prayer and trusting in what Jesus has done. The point is the battle we're in is a battle where we have an undefeated soldier who has fought for us at the cross. So stand firm in what he's done. C.S. Lewis, you know, the the, the guy who who wrote the Narnia books, he said, there are two great dangers for Christians. One is that we make too much of the devil. The other is that we make too little of him. The battle is real. So recognise it, particularly as we seek to reach beyond the fringe. But don't be afraid that it somehow hangs all on us. We, we, we really only have two main jobs. One job, again, is to be people of prayer, as we've already seen, who ask God to break down the barriers that stop people believing. The other main job that we have, and this takes us to our third and final thing here, is to preach God's word. So if we can go on to the third slide. Yeah, they preached God's word. Verses 4 to 7 and verse 12. So let's see this thirdly and finally. They arrive at Cyprus. What do they do as we, as we zoom out and see what they were doing around this encounter with Elymas and, and Sergius Paulus? They arrive. What do they do? They go first, we read, to the synagogue. Do you see this? Verse 5. They go first to the synagogue and proclaim the word. It's helpful to note this, isn't it, on the day that we're, we're, we're hosting our, our mission partners, Stephen and Deborah Pasht, as we uh, celebrate a, a Seder leading us in a Seder meal, Passover meal tonight, to show us how the Jewish hopes have been fulfilled in Jesus. And that's, that's the sort of thing that Paul would have been doing as he went to the synagogue to say, look, look, these, these hopes and desires that you have, they've been fulfilled in Jesus. He's the Messiah. Put your trust in him. And that's the pattern in Acts. They go first to the Jews in the synagogues to offer them the chance to respond to the message. And we need to keep doing that today with, with Jewish friends and, 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 and so on. But then they go elsewhere. So they go to this Roman governor. They go to Sergius Paulus, who wants, do you see this in verse 7? He wants to hear the word of God. It's remarkable, isn't it? Why would that be? Well, we just, we just seen this guy Bar-Jesus, a, a Jewish 
false prophet who on the, in one sense starts on the inside as a Jew, but he's behaving like a Gentile. And we get that, so he's then, we're told about his alternative name, Elymas, which is a Gentile name. And then his use of magic is again a Gentile pagan thing to do, not Jewish at all. Do you see how he goes in these verses from sight to blindness, verse 11? But contrast that with Sergius Paulus, who starts on the outside. He's blind to the good news about Jesus, but ends, verse 12, in sight, seeing and believing. And look what it is that's changed him. Do you see verse 12? It's not actually the strange, miraculous stuff about the blinding of the court magician that has changed his mind. Can you see this? Can you see verse 12, what, what, what has changed him? He's amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Isn't that striking? So we're seeing here two things that happen when God's word is preached. Some who ought to see, like Bar-Jesus, Elymas, ought to see. He's, he's from the right background. He ought to see, but he becomes blind as God's word is preached. But some who are blind, outsiders, hear the word of God and see. So Sergius Paulus. And do you see it's God's word that is doing both? We've seen already, you see, it's a spiritual battle. It takes the Holy Spirit to open blind eyes. And clearly he's already at work in Sergius before they arrive because Sergius is seeking to hear the word of God. He's got that desire in him. And uh, verse 7, which will only come from God working in him. But when the Holy Spirit opens blind eyes, the way he normally does that is through the teaching and preaching of the word. It is his sword, the word of God, the Holy Spirit's sword. It is his weapon. That's what uh, we heard in the second reading, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. So do you see, therefore, don't be discouraged or surprised when the same message about Jesus produces very different responses in people because that is not our work it is God's work our job is not to convert but to present what Jesus did so I came across this story recently of what happened when the 18th century preacher George Whitfield came to Hampstead do you know this? Do you know George Whitfield came to Hampstead? So in 1739, he preached at what is now called Preacher's Hill. Now, if you walk down Downshire Hill and you get to the bottom, before you go across East Heath Road onto the heath, there's a, there's a little hill up to the left behind the sort of playground. Okay, that is Preacher's Hill. So that is where George Whitfield came to preach in 1739. Okay, and he wrote, he had a little diary entry and he wrote about what happened. So let me read this to you. So he wrote, preached after several invitations thither at Hampstead Heath, about five miles from London. So Hampstead in those days was a, a little village on the hills, you know, outside London. Now it says, the audience was of the politer sort. <laughs> it's good to hear, isn't it? And I preached very near the horse course. So I think that's something to do with horses on the heath. Which gave me occasion to speak home to the souls concerning our spiritual race. Very good. Most were attentive, 
but some mocked. Thus, the word of God is either a savour of life unto life or of death unto death. God's spirit bloweth when and where it listeth. Now, he's using slightly old language, isn't he? But do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's the same word, but look, I preached the gospel and what I saw was some people rejoicing and accepting it and others saying this is total nonsense. The same word having different effects on the people who hear it. And that is George Whitfield, isn't it? It's one of the, you know, one of the greats when it comes to preaching. He led revivals. He saw thousands and thousands come to, 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 to faith, but he is clear. The preaching of the word of God will have that effect. Some to life, some to death, some to understanding and sight, others to confusion and blindness. And we leave that with the Holy Spirit and we trust him. And so again, we can't avoid this. We have to be people of prayer as a result. Do you see? Because the power is in God the power is in the message. The power is not in us. And if you're here and you're thinking, well, actually, I'm, I'm a bit like this guy, Sergius. You know, I want to hear the word of God. But I, I don't quite get this yet. It doesn't quite make sense. Well, it, it's brilliant that you're here. And it's a sign that God is doing something in you to bring you this far. Let me encourage you to pray, to say to God, I want to see. I want to see who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, to ask him to open your eyes. That is where it starts. And if I can help you with that, you know, do, do grab me after the service. But this is the church that went beyond the fringe. What about us? I told you, if you've been here the last few weeks, I told you I'd keep saying this. Talk to me if you want to get involved, especially in reaching beyond the fringe. Thinking about what it means to reach people who might not naturally walk into a building like this, in this area. What are we going to do? Well, we've got to start by praying sincerely like the church in Antioch did. Well, let's pray now, let me lead us in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the model that we see here of a community praying, relying on you to see how you want to use them to reach beyond themselves, to reach beyond the fringe. As we reflect on our own context here and our own situation that you've placed us in in North London, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would make it clear to us how to reach out even more effectively. Help us to be people who pray, who recognize the spiritual battle that we're in, 
who are committed to preaching your word. Please, would you use us as your people in the work that you've given us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.